Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. It's Shannon and Kathy. Um, This evening or today, we're going to talk about Netflix's Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes directed by Joe Berlinger. It's a four part uh, true crime documentary where the tapes that Ted Bundy recorded with a journalist um, while he was in prison in exchange for a reexamination of his case, actually, in hopes of not dying in the electric chair, mind you. Uh, they are used as a backdrop for, uh, well, yet another Bundy documentary. And this is uh, Netflix's, I don't know, gauntlet throne, I guess, as far as documentaries on Bundy is concerned. Mm. Um, so what we thought we would do is there are four parts to this, four episodes, basically. We thought we'd talk about episodes one and two and then take a little break and talk about episodes three and four, and then discuss some sort of overarching thoughts, feelings, psychology about the the whole thing as a whole. Uh, sound good? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I think it's so interesting. Um, I've been, you know, studying him and looking at his stuff for years. And it, I feel like since we've um, been talking about him, even within our own podcast, there's been this blow up in information about him over the last few months. It's really interesting because, you know, obviously he's been around for over 30 years. So yeah, it's a little, uh, God, I hate to say it, but a resurgence of fascination and we didn't plan that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When we did our series a few months ago, yeah, which you can go back and listen to, um, if you'd like, uh, we, we weren't, we were on trend, but here we are. I, and that's, uh, I guess that's what I was trying to say is that it was so not intentional, so unintentional, but, um, and I think we'll get into this when we talk about the series, but I think a lot of the fascination with him is the fact that he appeared so normal and he's one of those prolific serial killers that, we, I think we, a lot of people have obsessed about because he is the exact opposite of what most people think of. I guess so. It's interesting. I'm, I'll, I'm going to talk about it when I talk about like the overarching feelings I had about the series. Um, I'm going to address that just because my feelings about this documentary as a whole are so different than what they would have been, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so There were 75 to 80 tapes made by this company, like a hundred hours of recorded conversations um, between this uh, journalist and Bundy while he was imprisoned. 
And he made the deal to quote unquote, tell his story uh, for some phone calls with his then girlfriend, uh, Liz at the time. And so he makes this deal that he'll, you know, go on record, et cetera. And what it turns out to be is slightly different than as exciting as that sounds. Um, I, the journalist says at the beginning, just to t give you an idea, the journalist says at the beginning that he didn't really know what he was dealing with or what he was getting into. And he thought, you know, if, 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 if Bundy is really innocent, because of course that's what Bundy was maintaining at the time, then this will be a great story. And if he's not innocent, this will still be a great story. So, you know, it's a win-win. It was a win-win for this journalist at the time. Uh, so I can say one of the things I noticed right away in episode one was that, you know, Berlinger is a, is a good true crime documentarian. Like this is not his first rodeo. And so it's well edited. Uh, there's lots of archival footage. There's interviews with journalists and detectives and TV reporters intermixed with the archival footage and every now and then you hear a piece of Bundy's um, tape recording and you're kind of, they, they go in chronological order, would you say? Like basically yeah. mm -hmm. chronological. I mean, they go back and forth, but mm -hmm. they're basically taking you through the Bundy story as if you'd never noticed Bundy before, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it was a good setup. I mean, I thought that, you know, they take you through... Him talking about his childhood, which is, you know, all lies, basically, mm -hmm. um, up through, you know, when women start disappearing in 1974 and um, his first girlfriend. I thought that was really interesting, the relationship with Diane. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, I don't have a lot for the first episode, but I think one of the things that they captured um, and they, they commented on was in the 1970s there was this all of a sudden this phenomenon of serial killers it was this brand new thing um it was the time of manson son of sam hillside strangler gacy so it was a very unique time mm -hmm. and if you really look at just historically and even presently i would say from 1965 to 1985 is when we have the most notorious serial killers at least that we know of and that we've studied so it was a very interesting time, time of innocence mm -hmm. people trusted you know hitchhikers trusted people to pick them up um this was this was america at that time yeah my understanding is that between the years when he was abducting women in the beginning between like 74 and 78 he uh that was when the term serial killer was formed mm -hmm. created um by the fbi and so it was i think that's one of the things um that's super interesting that would be super interesting about a different kind of documentary <laughs> would be to to sort of look at the culture you know a more macro yeah view of of what this what his story and what him and what several others and maybe there's a documentary out there that somebody can point us to that takes the serial killers of the late 60s and 70s and 
how they came to that. I mean, I, you can read about how the FBI came to that, but it, I don't know if there's a documentary that does that specific thing. I think that's one of the reasons why I love that show Mindhunter, because it really yeah. it really takes us through the early stages of law enforcement understanding and psych- psychologist understanding or learning to understand because right. it was this new phenomenon. And and the, the I think the difference between Ted and these other guys Mm-hmm. Um, again, was he was such an enigma. He he was not what we had profiled or what we imagined. You know, Manson was a nut. He he looked crazy when he talks. Yeah, I mean, up until that point, they didn't. Right, Gacy dressed was, as a clown. Was, I mean, they were all. You know what I mean? Like they're just. Uh, Son of Sam was, was obsessed with the neighbor's dog. I mean, there was just. But but Ted was different because yeah. he wasn't different. Right. Not on the surface. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, but to them, like, that, they just hadn't seen it before. Um, so I think uh, what the episode one does, basically, is tries to take you through what he says about his childhood, which he talks about how he was, you know, had good parents, and he was a fraud catcher, and he had friends and all this. Total normal that, upbringing, he, he believed. Yeah, none of that was true. <laughs> yeah. Later. But, um... You know, documentaries always have an agenda. So the agenda of this documentary, I thought in this first episode, one of the things it gives us or hands us is a perceived psychological um, stressors or reasons why he started abducting women. Mm-hmm. So basically the way they tell the story is that he's in this relationship with Diane, who is his college sweetheart or college age sweetheart, I should say. She's, um, if you could say, like, if they were, if they would have gotten married, he would have been marrying up. Like, she had a good family, good education, smart, beautiful, etc. So, he's got this relationship with her. He thinks, you know, his grandiosity takes over. He thinks he's going to be the best lawyer in the world. He scores very poorly on the LSATs and gets into a crappy law school and his ego takes a hit. So, he's there. He's miserable. He's there for a year. His relationship with um, Diane, like she stops writing to him, it starts to fizzle, the law thing starts to go into the crapper, and wouldn't you know it, women start disappearing in 1970. He also finds out that his mom, uh, or his sister is his mom. <laughs> right, right, right. Right, so this is, he, he it's, it's uh, compounded by the, the other identity piece. Mm-hmm. where he finds out who, who he believed was his sister was his mother and his mother was his grandfather or grandmother and his you know father was his grandfather and this all happens at the same time that diane's like you're not good enough for me bye yeah and then women start disappearing yeah so it sets you up to say oh all right so that was the stressor that happened because in every good you know serial killer movie or story there's the sort of progression of he's like this but he hasn't really done anything too terrible yet you know he's like mean to kids and when he's young and all of that but he hasn't done anything too terrible and then this all happens women start disappearing um we find out later obviously that he's abducting and killing women um but nobody knew that at the time he gets a new girlfriend um and 
there's more disappearances. So the idea from the documentary, this, you know, I'm just going by this, is that he's with this new girlfriend and he's doing what he's doing with other women and abducting and killing them or torturing them or assaulting them or what have you. So there's more disappearances. And then, so now there's this manhunt out and they have a name. This is where the first episode sort of ends. They've got a name. There was a witness that heard him introduce himself as Ted at the lake. So they're looking for Ted and they get all these tips coming in and the girlfriend Liz um, calls in and says, I'm worried about my boyfriend. Um, And they interview her. And, you know, that's about where it ends. The other thing that happens in episode one at the end is they talk about how the journalist was starting to get real bored with Ted doing his biography because, you know, it's garbage. It's like he can tell it's not true and not, you know, authentic. And then he he figures out at that time, this was unique, I guess. He figures out that, you know, if Ted talks about everything in the third person and he appeals and he flatters Ted and makes him the expert, that Ted will talk about the murders and stuff in third person and so he begins to talk in more detail about like what a person like this would do da 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 because the journalist is bored he's like you're not talking about being a killer i don't understand so like as if he thought he would you know yeah i i think um one of the things that i uh i thought the documentary painted well too was ted always makes the person whoever's audience is, whether it's us now in 2019 or Mm -hmm. the, the journalist or, you know, the attorney, he makes it seem like he's, he's doing everyone a favor. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that he says in the first episode is, um, you know, he felt it was his duty to tell people what was going on inside, (laughs) you know, the grandiosity, the grandiosity. And like, um, I'm I'm doing you, you know, I, I felt that at that time, you know, people needed to know what was going on and then Mm -hmm. the 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 third person piece is um really interesting excuse me really interesting as well uh because he really does start to talk about himself as this entity Mm -hmm. and this starts moving into the second episode which we're getting into but yeah let's go for it the way that he just presents his story part Mm -hmm. of it there is a there is a detachment obviously there's mm-hmm. i mean he's completely detached even the way he describes his childhood i think some of that is wanting to paint a certain picture but i also do truly believe that he um he sort of sensationalized his childhood and and we talked about this in in uh when we were doing the 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 four three or four part series that we did which was he really believed his father who ended up being his grandfather was this hero and he was this abusive narcissist right so there's a lot of detachment and as the episodes progress we see more and more of that until the end where he actually you know admits that it's he can talk more in that first person yeah i mean it's very important for him and we know this as therapists it's very important for his narrative to match how he feels about himself inside mm-hmm so the narrative that he tells you um, as himself has got a lot of the grandiosity. And then if he's going to speak as an 
expert about someone who might be killing people, he's really telling you about that other part of himself, which I, you know, is mildly interesting. <laughs> um, episode two. So Liz calls the cops, provides, you know, provides a picture. You know, there's a name and a sketch and they've got a picture of this person now, right? And seven out of ten people on the lake said the photo wasn't the guy. So um, so much for eyewitness testimony. Yeah, eyewitness testimony, as we have all learned from Law & Order, is, you know, not so great. Um, but at that time, they trusted it. Um, it's been debunked, you know, now. But um, so... Yeah, they were getting close. Their murder stopped. He moves to Utah, etc. You can always go through the chronology. Instead of politics. Oh, by the way, while he was in law school, he's doing the political thing. Now he goes towards the church. Can I stop you for one second? Yeah, going of going back to the, uh, the. They said it looked nothing like him. I forgot. I have a note here. <laughs> the original sketch does not look anything like him, though. It's no, it's horrible. Know. I mean, I would have been like, "That's not him." No, it's no. terrible. I know it's really bad. His eyes are too close together. His hair's all curly and weird. Look, anyway, I just well, and he was quite the like he he changed his looks very successfully. Yeah, so I, did. I can you know he was pretty savvy in that way, and I think later in the series he says something about it on the tape. He he says something about you know you can you know people are people are creatures of habits, and so you've got to change all of your habits if you want to be yep. a different person. Like if you want to fool everyone and he in how and he described how easy that was like yeah. for him he's like it was it's so easy to just it, he's so candid he talks about and during this episode is where he describes how he sees women as possessions objects to be controlled and tortured mm-hmm. and just so with such nonchalance yeah i mean the yeah he just there's a surfaceness, obviously, to his personality and, um, you know, the lack of remorse and and all of that for his victims. And at this point in the story, he starts to talk about, you know, well, someone who would do those kinds of things has obviously got a very poor, you know, bad porn habit and mm-hmm. connects sex with violence and all of that. And so, and we find out later, of course, that you know, necrophilia and he did connect sex with violence and that it was a sexual impulse um, for him. Yeah. He connected the, the women to the violence. And then he would describe how the anger, the frustration and the anxiety would grow until this entity would Mm -hmm. control him. And then he would explicitly describe the murder, but this is all within that third person. He's still saying, this is how it would work. Yeah. With this individual. Yeah, for sure. Um, in this episode, we also get sort of the botched abduction. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a woman that he tried to abduct that got away because um, she didn't follow orders. <laughs> She's like, oh, screw that. I'm out of here. And um, they interview her in the documentary, which I thought was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. They had her and she she was brought in and out parts of her interview. Um you know, he's all over the Northwest. I think by now he's like been through Utah and Colorado and um, he's brought in for a lineup and goes to jail. Uh, 
yeah, this is when he starts to be imprisoned. <laughs> uh, in I think in like 1976, he gets charged with uh, murder with premeditation, something like that. So it's a couple of years later, and he is doing that. Um, do you feel comfortable just going into episode three? Because I didn't have too much more on that one. Yeah, I was just going to say a couple things here um, mm-hmm. for two. So um, another thing that they talk about in episode three is how he he really thrived on this perception of being well-mannered, law-abiding, mm-hmm. having his life in order. Um, so just kind of revisiting the the police lineup and the picture and stuff. I think that a lot of it, again, had to do with the way that he presented himself in these situations, even if he was right in front of someone, people mm-hmm. were like, no, that's still not, that's, that can't be him. That's not him. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting. So, so such a vague presence, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, this is when he saw his first prison psychiatrist too, Dr. Carlisle, mm-hmm. who I, I made a note that, um, cause they had him in the documentary too. They, so they had a lot of the major players, which of course is great. <clears throat> um, excuse me. Um, and I, I thought it was funny that Dr. Carlisle was um, said that Bundy called him an asshole, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, that's familiar." Yeah, <laughs> right. And then what I saw as a therapist when I was watching that part of the interview, what I resonated reson- resonated <laughs> that's funny resonated with was. Um, that he hated him and the way he talked about him was so um, seemingly demeaning and putting him down, you know, because that kind of personality is always going to want to feel superior. And when they come up against someone who actually is more educated and smart and actually better at psychology than him, then he's going to need to tear them down Mm -hmm. to try to make them feel bad, um, which rarely works in psychology, but, um, and but then he ends up telling Dr. Carlisle some of the things that nobody knew about him. Like at 14, he found out that he was um, illegitimately born to an unwed to a mom in an unwed mother home, you know, um, and that his grandfather was actually really violent. And he told the psychiatrist all of that, mm-hmm. which he hadn't told the journalist. He hadn't really told anybody that stuff yet. So although. He thought he was an asshole and tried to tear him down. Dr. Carlisle was able to have him be more vulnerable about his childhood than he ever had been before. So mm-hmm. um, I'm actually going to take a break uh, right now. Um, we're we're just kind of unless there was something else you wanted to say about episode two. No, no, I'm I'm ready to go right into episode three if you'd like to. take. OK, a let's just take a quick break. As you guys can tell, my I'm sick. My throat is I got to go have a coughing fit or something. So (laughs) give me, give me a minute and we'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi, 
everybody. This is Shannon and Kathy back from the break. I had a little coughing fit and got some tea and <laughs> and we're continuing on with the rest of our conversation about Netflix's conversations with a killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Yeah. So we're moving into episode three, which is where um, the documentary takes us into his escape from the courthouse. Oh, uh, yeah. So now he's, you know, he's been arrested. He's still claiming his innocence and and again, I keep going back to this, but I think it's really re- relevant um, because he appeared so so normal, quote unquote normal, because he appeared so well mannered and law abiding that they gave him a lot of freedom um, mm. or just, you know, I don't know if it was necessarily there was trust or just pure innocence at the time. I'm not sure. But yeah, during, during it was the, some naivete. And yeah, anger. there's there's a couple things there. But during a, a recess, during his trial, he goes up to the law library, and we know from our episodes that he, you know, he jumps out the window and escapes and lands on his ankle and steals a car. And I mean, it's just. A... I thought it was pretty great the way they did it. Like, they showed pictures of the yes. room, and they had the the guy there, like in present day, in the room, showing yep. us the window and. And then they even measured, they they said after he jumped that you could still see the divot in the ground from where his feet landed. And they showed that they they measured it out. Local news footage. Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, That was cool. So, yeah. So a couple of things. Obviously, you know, there's a naivete. There's probably a thought that who the hell would jump from there. But he was, (laughs) it, it really, this episode really paints his resourcefulness, not just his physical resourcefulness, but mm-hmm. the the emotional and mental piece too, because this is I just noticed in this episode spe- specifically, but we know this about him already. Is he has this odd sense of humor and positivity about him, the way mm-hmm. that he presents everything, and almost in like a childlike when they ask him, you know, Mister Bundy, did you ever do kind of laugh and giggle? And he's like, well, if that you know includes me stealing a comic book when I was, I mean, he if you just want to punch him in the face. Liz affect is incongruent. I mean, that's one of the things, right? And it's we... provocative. It's like he mm-hmm. uses it in a way almost to to piss people off. I don't know. I, I and he's very glib. Um, he knows that even when he's being questioned, he's still running the show. He talks to authorities like they're his best friend or his buddy. Um, he's he feels he's intellectually superior. So this uh, episode really gets into how resourceful he is, at least in the beginning stages of his trials. Um, But this is also the episode where he really starts to get into this entity in the third person who he describes almost like a god, like (coughs) writing his own story. Um, But how his grandiosity is exacerbated further by his escape success. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, well, that worked. I'm even more of a badass than I thought I was. Yeah. Um, and this, and he, this is also the episode where he, he says creating an identity is not terribly difficult to do at all. So this is where he's, his, he, they really start to emphasize this grandiosity and they discuss the Chi Omega murders. So they were interviewing one of the officers and he says, I, I don't know who would go into a sorority house murder these women beat up these women and then not just leave he goes down the block and creates another brutal murder 
or or he attempts to to Cheryl Thomas. I can't remember. I think she's still alive. Uses the same log that he beat the other woman with at Kyle Mega. So he's starting to just get more arrogant, but also more rageful. I thought it was, I think he's in a frenzy at that yeah. point. Yeah, and he didn't he didn't get enough. Um, but because, that's intense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he he's so primal. Um, killed two women and then hurt two others that you know they thought maybe were dead but weren't, and then went out and hurt another one. He just hadn't had enough. I watched so. an interview with Cheryl Thomas. Um, because she did survive this. She was a dancer and she was not able to dance after this. But I, there's a lot of great um, interviews with her mm-hmm. that you can find if you're interested and in, anyone's interested. But yeah, this episode, I think, really just gets into his, like you said, the frenzy, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the grandiosity. You know, it's like, wow, I got away with this and this. I'm going to keep going. Well, and it's a lot of the stuff that I think a lot of people... Um if you haven't studied it intimately, won't know some, a lot of the detail. Mm -hmm. So like the whole story of him jumping out the second story window and then spending seven days in the mountains. Mm -hmm. um, With a a broken ankle, essentially, or sprained ankle. Yeah. And losing 25 pounds in the mountains and, you know, just the incongruence for me of his narrative around, Oh, the time was amazing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had these, you know, mental shifts while I was in the mountains when, when really he was like starving to death and mm-hmm. having hallucinations and, and walked back into town, stole a car <laughs> and then gets caught. And then, and he's caught because his ankle is off and he's driving poorly. Yeah. It's a traffic stop, you know? Yeah. It's like, um, and then escapes again when he's in a different jail through the ceiling, which is where the jailer lives, takes the clothes and walks out. And that's when he goes and kills in Florida. And I can only imagine, you know, how the police must have felt that let him get away because he just does so much more damage. And yeah, I mean, they didn't really know how many people he'd already killed. So they... well, and they're sitting there going, who can fit through that little piece in the ceiling well he could he just kept losing more weight he was so skinny yeah um, crazy crazy and when he finally gets caught and then he refuses to id himself he uses a false id and then you know after like 45 days they finally catch him after all this murder and mayhem and they don't he won't tell him who he is and he makes a deal you know like all of that minutiae that you can watch in the series and you know the the intricacies of the trial and stuff it's just like stuff people wouldn't necessarily know you yeah. know yeah just like episode four it's the same it's like i thought i don't know some of the things i liked was being able to see all of the trial footage in like a linear kind of chronological fashion mm-hmm. um i thought that was interesting mm-hmm. um, going through the story with the details and you know order and and the interviews and seeing Mm-hmm. the trial and the way he would refuse to speak and then try to speak. And, you know, they just telling the trial story. I thought they did really well. Co- co-counseling without a law degree. Yeah. I love that. Um, <laughs> and how resentful the lawyers were. They interviewed the lawyers and Oh God. Yeah. They were so funny. They're just like, yeah, he thought he really was <laughs> great. I, I loved that. The, this is just sort of a fun piece of information. If you, if you've seen it, then you, you'll figure out, but the judge's closing statement is the name of the, um, the Sundance film. 
yeah, which is kind of cool. Uh, I, I, put, I put in quotes here, um, I'm in the enviable position, you know, he, till the end. Yeah. He just, and that's where that goes back to what I was saying in episode three, which is so glib, still running the show. Even when he, I think it's in, I think it's in three or four where he's like, I want to talk to the press. And they're like, no, you're not talking to the press. I mean, yeah, he, that was the end of three. Yeah. That was the end of three. And he's, he's being he was served. so mad that he wasn't allowed to speak. <laughs> yeah. 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 I am. Um, you know, what struck me in episode four was actually that um, they offered him a plea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because of who he is, mm-hmm. he didn't accept it. Yep. And things like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was, I kind of at the end was just sort of thought like, I was, you know, I'm making notes, of course, for this discussion. And like, he eventually gets put on death row and is killed by electric chair and he could have accepted a plea. Well, we, we, we talked about this in ours and um, the the quote that either the opposing attorney, I can't remember who said it now, but he basically was like, you know, he accepted it until he found out that he had to admit to his guilt and he would rather be electrocuted than ever admit to what he's done and it, it it goes back to the narcissism and the sociopathy of like nope i'm still in control i still win you're still wrong even if that means me losing my life except in the very end i thought was really interesting when they have those video those tapes of him whispering yeah yeah that was pretty creepy the, the thing that where really he, got sorry go ahead i was just gonna say where he's actually talking about where one of the bodies was and it's like the only time in four hours where you feel like you're getting anything real from him. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think um, we, we talk about women and women's roles on this podcast quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, the two, the things that really got me in episode four was the, the blind devotion that Carol and his mother had. Mm-hmm. for him yeah um carol was the woman that he w- was dating ultimately married you know, and had a kid with and had a kid with and he found that loophole during his sentencing of you know carol you want to get married right now i mean even all that is just so crazy and they had all the real footage i thought that was great they had all the real footage so but carol would actually bring him drugs vaginally and then he would insert them in his anus and take them back to his cell yeah, he was just high all the time. High all the time. Um, so you have Carol, who has this, you know, blind devotion. And once she finds out that he's admitting he actually did it, uh, she feels like an asshole. And then that's compounded by his mother, who is in complete denial and protecting his innocence from the beginning. And when she finds out, her response is, let, you know, to the, to the attorneys or the detectives, is uh, let's have some apple pie and ice cream. I mean, there's just such a ice cream. I know it's like right. Oh my God. And then you have a female psychologist mm-hmm. uh, who says, I-, "I think this is really the consequence of bipolar disorder." So no, we have- I know that whole thing that. Um, yeah, there's this one point where he gets diagnosed with bipolar from this 
therap- the psychologist, um, to and it stays his execution due to mental illness. And there's this one woman in the documentary that they're interviewing that maintained throughout that he wasn't mentally competent. Right. That he couldn't understand what was going on and how crazy and disoriented he was during the trials and confused, you know, just proves that he didn't know what he was talking about. Which is interesting because if you do competency evaluations, he would completely pass. Yeah. yeah. That's why he kept passing. Well, right. But, but for a psychologist to say he was disorganized and he didn't, he knew why he was there. He knew exactly what the consequences of his actions were. Um, you don't even have to do a competency evaluation to know that he passes the test. He, he co-counseled his case. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's just like, um, I used to, I used to write 5150 holds. I used to, um, hospitalize people for danger to self or danger to others or gravely disabled. And I think it's a similar situation where I think people, lay people don't understand that the criteria is very clear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are lots of things that people, lay people would think that would qualify you to be psychiatrically hospitalized against your will, mm-hmm. you know, involuntarily, which is a 5150. And I think this is a similar thing with, with being um, found competent is it's, there's very clear criteria. Yes. It's very strict. It's very clear. It's kind of black and white in mm-hmm. many ways. And I think a lot simpler just like 5150, the assessments are not simple for um, being hospitalized or for competency, but the criteria is That's actually right. pretty sim- sim- simple to me. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and, <coughs> and being manic, let's just go with the bipolar, which is was not happening, but let's just go with the mania, does right. not warrant incompetency. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have all of these, some of it was the time. And the laws right. have changed and things, but you're looking at, you know, I don't know if they did, now we're getting the psychology here, but I don't know if they did embedded validity tests to see if he was malingering, you know, because this woman was so certain that this was bipolar. I, I don't know anyone, and I know people in my life who are bipolar, who are, who lack empathy and uh, are serial murders. So, but like, I mean, Bi- you know. bi- bipolar disorder oftentimes gets misdiagnosed or narcissistic personality dis- disorder gets misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder sometimes. Yeah, so. I mean, I have no idea what he was presenting with. He was on drugs. I mean, yeah, I, there's so many things. It's it's not that that particular psychologist was particularly wrong at that time. Like, I have no idea what she was seeing or mm-hmm. what he was presenting with or what he was lying about or. Mm-hmm. Um, he could have been having manic symptoms, you know, she could have been talking about, um, you know, the, the s- social emotional issues that come with psychopathy or, I mean, I have no idea, Yeah. Mm-hmm. but two yeah. days before the execution, this was enough to stay the execution, which right. I thought was fascinating. Like I would want to know about that. Like, okay, wait, what? Wait, you skipped right over that. Let's have a right. conversation about that. I want to know yeah. what, I want to read that report. What happened there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, he starts to threaten to stick a pencil up his nose and all that. And someone like Bundy's not going to kill himself. That's just ridiculous. Oh, no. and then he, all of a sudden he decides to get honest, you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, the guys of God, like, oh, well. Yeah. And then the- his mortality yeah. kicked in, which he, he never thought 
would be, you know, yeah, the ending is the end to his life is quite fascinating. And the the people who just had this blind devotion and um, Carol specifically, and, and, and then the meltdown she had when she found that he was a big fraud. Um, She had to get in touch with reality. His mother never did. She, I just think was no. Yeah. Completely traumatized. Yeah. It didn't look like it. So, I mean, there's a lot that's not in the, so, all right. So, Here's unless you have anything else to say about specific no. about documentary, I think we started to get into our our zone. Our psycho- <laughs> psychological um, diatribes, yeah, our, our shizzle, yeah. as I say. <laughs> um, but a couple of things I wanted to say, just in, so we're going to talk sort of overarching stuff. Um, so again, like like I said, I liked the footage. I liked seeing a lot of the archival footage. I liked going through the story again. There's some details certainly that I didn't know or didn't care about it prior to this, but um, that were interesting to me, certainly about his escapes and the different things that were happening there and um, how the investigative system (laughs) doesn't demand that police share information across state lines, like hello. Um, So there's a lot of things I think that, um, how do I say this? Um, my views of these kinds of things are so different um, now than they were before my education in psychology, I guess. Um, I think before my education and before sitting and talking to a lot of very sick people, I probably would have found this far more fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because I remember in my youth being fascinated by serial killers. They show in the documentary, like, these young women in the courtroom that are fascinated by him. And mm-hmm. Not that they want to be around him. They they even say like, oh, he scares me and all that, but they're fascinated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty typical. Um, um, but in many ways, he's not, he's not profound nor interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> as a person. He's um, not. The only thing he really taught us is that serial killers exist, you know, like during that time, he was one of the people that told our culture that serial killers exist. Like he was, that's the thing he gave us, you know, besides all the terror and a lot of scary bedtime stories and documentaries. And I guess, I mean, myself included, there's a callousness sort of over our collective unconscious um, about these kinds of stories because, you know, more recently We've got OJ doing the same type of thing, talking about himself in third person in a book, you know, if I did it or whatever. It's like the same thing that they did with Bundy in these tapes, um, talking about it in the third person in order to get someone to talk about something. So it's no longer like a unique thing, I guess (laughs) is my point. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I think for, for, for me with Bundy was more of the... This is a guy who, uh, and I guess it depends on how we define the word function. Like when yeah. someone says they're a functioning alcoholic, he was like a functioning serial killer. Yeah. And he went through a lot of his life really getting by and, and by the skin of his teeth a lot of times. But he was highly organized in a lot of ways. 
you know, I mean, when we look really into a lot of detail, we realize that, you know, he was not as controlled as he presented himself, but he got away with a lot. He manipulated a lot. Um, I think that to me is the more fascinating piece than the the violence and the people kill. People are able to kill. People are psychopathological. Like you said, 15, 20 years ago, that part of it would have been more fascinating to me. Sure. But but for you and me and working with clients and both of you and you and I have both worked with um, people who are either court mandated or yeah, forensic population. forensic populations, marginalized populations. That piece is like there are a dime a dozen. I, I hate to say that, but there are many people out there who um, are violent and will kill somebody, whether it's due to a mental illness or a, a character, logical disorder. But Bundy was one of the only with the exception maybe btk was the other one that had a full family going all of this stuff Mm -hmm. happening and nobody had any clue he's even more he's another one we can talk about another time um Mm -hmm. but i think that's what gets me is he did this for a a long period of time and and got away with so much Mm -hmm. um and people kept believing his lie. It was like he had believed his lie so much that people believed it. And that's the part I think that's more fascinating is how our, sorry, I'm at a loss for words. People's reactions to him more than him himself. Yeah, for sure. And that's completely, um, that leads me into something else I wanted to mention, which is exactly what you're saying. Um, is that, you know, I, I made a little list of like, here's what I want to see a docu- a Bundy documentary do. <laughs> this is what I wrote down. Um, in other words, okay, I'm good on the, like, Ted Bundy's story. I mean, first of all, Conversations with a Killer, I realize that's the name of the series that they do on the Netflix, but this isn't a conversation. It's a monologue. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, re- Bundy's monologue of revisionistic personal history narrative is basically what it is, but um <coughs> sorry <coughs> i have a cough um the thing is is that what i would like to see since i have a feeling bundy documentaries are not going to go away entirely um i'd like to tell the stories of around bundy i'd love to have you know the women who were like his daughter mm-hmm. his ex-wife his ex-girlfriend any women who had relationships with him or the, their families or his descendants. Yeah. Um, people who knew his mother or other family members right. that might still be alive. Right. People around him, anybody who came in contact with him. If I'm an investigative journalist, I'm going to want to know all about all that. I totally agree. And I'll tell you, my reaction to the documentary overall is I've seen all these tapes. I've mm-hmm. watched almost every documentary you can find on YouTube or whatever about him. I could do his story in my sleep. That part was okay, but I wanted more of like everything you just said. And I found myself at times going, I've watched this. I already know this. I've seen this. They took other people's footage and they did you, like you said, they did a great job with the editing. They did Mm -hmm. a great job putting it together, but it's nothing we have never seen before. No, there's nothing new there. I mean, Mm-mm. a little bit, maybe there, a couple of things, but um, not that I I would know. It's like, I, I mean, finding the other bodies. He copped to 30 bodies 
Right. Uh, where's the other 30? You <laughs> right. Know? Like, I would want to know the victim's families, you know, the lineage of the victim's families and yeah. what's going on there. I'm sure there's well, a this is, this story is the, there. The sad part is, you know, his, his last victim was, what, 12 years old? Yeah. Okay. Nope. She has gotten zero attention. And here he gets all this attention for his last victim being 12 years old. But we know such, such little about her. And in yeah. part, that could partially be for privacy and, and respect for the family and things like that. But it's like he gets in a, in a sick way, like congratulated for that. And these, you know, Cheryl, that's why I was saying Cheryl Thomas, I had watched a couple documentaries on her. Uh, I mean, a couple interviews with her and hearing her side of it. I was more intrigued by yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, investigating, like I was saying before, investigating the system that doesn't demand that police share information across state lines, um, talking about the mental shift in the nation, like once they realize that serial killers really exist and how things shifted and culturally. Now, I have a feeling that those things are addressed in, in some documentaries. It's just, it, it just seems to be that we fall into Bundy's trap too, you know, as filmmakers, as cultural um, enthusiasts, as pop culture people, like we fall into Bundy's trap too. It becomes all about Bundy. Like what's the rest of the stuff? You know, there's so much more like, has anybody done a real, I mean, and maybe you know this because you've seen a lot of them, but has anybody had a real conversation or study of Bundy's psychology, like a forensic study no. Or a study that's not just behavioral, a study that's not just the DSM-5. Or, 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 or just his story, just his yeah. murders. Right. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the closest we get to that is, is going to be the more, you know, generalization of, you know, the Robert Hares and the books that they write, that he writes yeah. on psychopathy and things like that. Right. But anything specific to Bundy and, and doing a I would love to see someone do a psychological autopsy on him. Right. And they've done, they do it on a lot of people. So, I mean, I've read the one on Hitler. There's, there's different ones. So maybe there's one out there. Maybe we'll figure out where it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) and read it. Um, And what she, what Kathy's referring to is the, is um, Dr. Hare, the psychopathy checklist revised. He's um, it's the 20 traits. It's an assessment that, um, psychiatrists often do um, to determine whether you are a psychopath. <laughs> he has a great book called Without Conscience, where he talks about it's one of his most um, famous books. And for people who are just really wanting to learn the psychology behind antisocial mm-hmm. personality disorder, he he writes a lot about his experience in prisons and uh, working in prisons and working with in corrections or working with people who are violent uh, criminals. How he even created the psychopathy checklist so his stuff is really good but it is more clinical and you know people want the the hollywood part of it so right i don't know if there hasn't been a book on a psychological autopsy for bundy because i don't know is it that there was is not there's no audience for it i believe people would want to read that especially in this climate social climate well, and it's like you're going to have to make the choice to make it um, accessible reading for everyone mm-hmm. or, you know, language that everyone can understand or to make it 
you know, um, a mental health, you know, resource or what have you. But I mean, I, it's, it's one of the many things I wrote down, like, where's that thing? But yeah, I mean, I can throw my hat in the ring a little bit. Um, so this would probably be my sort of like closing thought to the whole thing that kind of came up for me when I was reflecting on this series and all the conversation that we've had about Bundy and I think we'll have a little bit more because we'll probably see um, the movie with Zac Efron and maybe throw that in an episode somewhere. I don't think it warrants a whole episode, but it'll it'll get thrown in somewhere. We'll discuss it. Um, but one of the things I was thinking was, I think as an audience member, if you're sort of in touch with how you feel about Bundy through this, watching this, you may come away from watching this with a feeling as if Bundy's true, like interior, like his inner thoughts and feelings is like just out of reach. I think there's, um, there's that feeling, there's that context to it. And I think that's his allure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I would say to that from my training and, you know, this is experience is that, and the way I orient towards psychology is that the thing is, is it's not just out of reach, in my opinion. It's right there. And what you're reacting to is the horrifying void that you feel when you truly try to learn all about him is exactly what's inside of him. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's just out of reach. It's that you're feeling the mixture of primal urges and frustrations as well as the emptiness that's so vast. We, as healthy individuals, can't fathom how that sort of void or emptiness would feel. So there's almost almost like a, I think like a projective identification in a way, like we're picking up on what, what he feels on the inside. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, those of you who don't know, it's like we, as psychologists, we, and I think average people, paraprofessionals do this too. You sit with someone and you begin to feel the way they feel. So when we, study Bundy or watch Bundy or watch four hours of him or whatever. We, we feel that void, that emptiness. And that's why, so this is what I would say is that that's why there's a superficiality there. So the psychology of him or this kind of psychopath, cause there's different kinds. Um, that's the function of the superficiality. It's all there is. The void was created a long time ago. Like, as a kid, as a baby, whatever, through all this trauma, all these different experiences, plus the brain chemistry that we know is probably very different than the average person. Um, The void was created a long time ago, this emptiness inside of him, this like voidness of character. And the ego created on top of it, this superficiality to protect the whole from exposure. So if he's got a hole inside of him, to get along in the world and to be good at what he does and to survive and to get through the things he needed to get to and to get laid and all that. There's this superficiality on top of that. So that if, and when, because here's what happens whenever the hole is exposed, whenever the emptiness is like exposed to the world or exposed to the air, the true nothingness inside of him becomes so clear and he feels vulnerable and exposed and that's when the rage and the shame yes. pushes, pushes that, pushes everything out of the way to hide the fact that he's so empty 
and, and the a, rage per- a perfect and- example of that shannon would be when diane dumps him yeah exactly so <clears throat> the way the way my orientation talks about that is just the way i talked about it is that when the when that emptiness or lack thereof of a self or a shattered self inside of him is exposed the rage and the shame comes up and he starts killing people and abducting people or what have you or goes into all of that rage like i can imagine him after the kyo murders walking down the street and just like attacking anyone he saw in order to cover up the whole you know to to not acknowledge that he's just an empty self um and um so i guess my thought is is that when you watch it or when you know ted bundy or when you read about ted bundy and you feel like gosh we just really never know what he's thinking or what he's saying he never actually really talks about the murders you know like there's nothing there man he's an empty shell mm-hmm yeah, I think I think that's right. I think people want to um, find something like there's going to be this big moment. They're going to be like, that's it. And I think um, I think you really just nailed it. I mean, again, it depends on where you sit theoretically, but I, I agree with you. And I sit in that same space where he's just one big defense mechanism, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we don't know. There's so many different theories on. You know, are you born with certain pieces of this? Is it nature and nurture? Is it this and that? Obviously, with with him, there it seems like there was a combination of both things going on. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he he was very much a um, insecure, shattered, hollow. Uh, he lacked a self. He lacked an identity. Unstable. Um, you know, and then he develops this compensatory sense of self. And this is where he felt the most powerful. Yeah. And it's really, that's really it. Yep. That's really it. That's and, really it. My book. I don't know. <laughs> and we, I think we want to find more because we're so, yeah. there's so much disbelief around that's what caused this. It's like, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's us. That's it. I think that's it, unless we have any other pithy things to say. I'm um, kind of done with Ted. Ted I think I'm dead. done with the pithy things. I think I said what I needed to say. Ted is dead. Um, yeah. So that's our episode on um, Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Uh, next week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to move on to a couple of other true crime. We realized we'd been ignoring Netflix, you know, um, and we'd been ignoring true crime there for a while. We got in a horror jag, so... Um, and we'll get back to the horror jag in a minute, but next week we're going to talk about abducted in plain sight, which has been getting a lot of play and a lot of controversy. So I felt like we should talk about that. And then, um, we'll also talk about murder mountain, which is another, uh, Netflix true crime psychology situation. So we're going to talk about those two next week. And, um, thank you so much for listening. This is terror talk. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe, everyone. Hi, everybody. We're back. We're going to do our What the Hell segment for this week. Uh, if you do not know what the What the Hell segment is, it is we each independently find kind of a crazy true crime or psychology or film, something in line with what we're doing here. 
a crazy story. It's not researched. We don't get any facts. It's just a story that made us say, what the hell? Oh my God. Uh, or something along those lines. Um, so uh, mine, I will go with mine first. It's the story of how two women, both named Mary Morris, lived in the same city. And they died within the same week. Oh, God. I know. Weird. The assumption is that Mary Morris's husband, Mike Morris, hired a hitman to kill his wife. Lo and behold, oh, the God. killed the wrong Mary Morris. Oh, God. Another housewife by mistake. That's a bad mistake. <clears throat> and then, oh, but then, then it gets worse. <laughs> then this hitman decided to kill the true Mary Morris just a few days later. <laughs> this is the assumption that it's still an unsolved true crime story but yeah he's like oops oh wait, sorry let me go dude. take care of the other one <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I killed the wrong one i mean what the hell i understand i'm killing the wrong one we've seen that on like every crime show ever made but then he goes and kills the right one a few days later like so sorry. Let me give you your money's worth. And, and how did that even come to be? Like, did the husband call and say, why isn't my wife dead? Yeah, like, you know, he's like, well, I did kill happened? her. Yeah. Mm, do you have the right? Oh, I must have killed the wrong. I mean, how does that even, how does that conversation go? How does that conversation even happen? And I'm sure we can all imagine what was said. God. What the Horrible. hell? What the He's hell? Still here. All right. You ready yeah. for this? I am. The Tal- a Taliban leader claims arrest cash. That's the name of it. All right. So officials were left baffled by an Afghan Taliban commander who actually gave himself up to uh, claim the $100 reward for his capture. $100. $100. So $100. Mohammed Ashan. Oh, Mohammed. A mid to low... This is in quotes, a mid to low level Taliban commander. Well, I guess so for only hundred dollars. Was suspected of organizing attacks on the U.S. and Afghan troops in the east uh, of the country. So according to the reports, he walks up to uh, the police checkpoint in 2012, 2012, and he, he points to the poster featuring his face. And asks for the $100 finding fee, finder's fee. Mother of God. Yeah. So the authorities were at a loss, like how to even explain his actions or what happened. But there was <laughs> the U.S. Um, officially reported, uh, or the journalist officially said, clearly this man is an imbecile. But, I mean, <laughs> that, that was like from the U.S. I mean, I don't think there's an argument there. Officials, yeah. Wow. I mean, what did he expect? here will you take that in 20s or 10s <laughs> and you know like what it, what did he expect the guy to say does here that go, go to his bail box. nice knowing you <laughs> does that go to his bail i mean like, i'm looking at, and again how did that play out did he did he say anything did he just point yeah i mean like, that's the way that i guess the story is saying he just pointed but i'm sure there was more to that's it hysterical. <laughs> what an idiot oh my god oh god all right, everyone. <laughs> That's our What the Hell segment for this week. Please join us next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about some, well, relatively new horror movies, right? We're going to talk about uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, which is new. Mm-hmm. Hush. 
and The Boy. I think Hush is like in the last couple of years. And The Boy, I chose because we had made such a... <laughs> we were like, why are they making A Boy too? I've, I've never even heard of the first one. So <laughs> Shannon like, and I watched the it. First one. We yeah. watched it. And we'll let you know whether or not we thought there should have been A Boy too. Yeah. Exactly. So we're trying to follow up on the stuff we say. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, please join us next week for that. Um, This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. (laughs) Cool, man. So here's what I would like to do. I'd like to hang up on you to finish this episode. Okay. So it's just easier for me when I'm editing. That's fine. I'll look for my um, what the hell while you're doing that. Cool. And I'm going to go get another cup of tea so that I have that on backup. And I'll text you when we're ready again. Noise. Okay, bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.